0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members exploring and sharing their research in and across the region.
0: Welcome to SEAC Stories. My name's Christy Ward and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Centre. I'm delighted to be hosting today's podcast with our very own Michelle Ford, who is the Director of the Centre. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks, Christy. Nice to be here. Michelle, could you kick us off today by telling us a little bit about your overarching research agenda?
2: Overall, I'm interested in the relationship between local and global labour movements. I think this is really interesting because it tells us a lot about how the world works in terms of economics in the current era, but also how the politics of these relationships play out. And
0: focusing on uh, that politics angle, one of your major projects has been to look at trade union aid in the Southeast Asian region and globally as well. Could you tell us a bit about that?
2: My project on trade union aid, which is funded by the Australian Research Council, looks at how the international trade unions, that is the global union federations in particular, engage with unions in Southeast Asia. I'm interested in this because these organisations have played a really important role in trying to support local labour movements, particularly after transitions, whether it be a transition from authoritarianism or some other kind of transition in a country's governance and its relationship with the world. And what have been some of the outcomes
0: of the GUF's role in the region?
2: Well, I think I'll start with an example from Indonesia, which is the country I work on most. After 1998, when Suharto fell, there was a really important period of growth for the trade union movement. And a lot of that was underpinned by international support. Now, some of this support came from international NGOs like Oxfam, but a lot of it came from the global union federations. So, for example, if we look today, by far the most influential union in Indonesia is the Metal Workers' Federation, and one of the reasons it works so well is because of the support it got from what was then the International Metal Workers' Federation, which was one of the guffs at the time.
0: And so what have been some of the the more negative impacts, perhaps, of the receipt of large volumes of aid on national trade union movements, and in particular, Indonesia?
2: In the best case, even, there's lots of challenges with working across national boundaries. For example, donors, whether they be the GUFs themselves or the back donors that support GUFs, have very particular ways of working. They require levels of accountability, receipting for programs, reporting and so on. But also there may be things that are important in those other countries that are not so important in Indonesia. And an example of this might be something like green jobs. I mean, yes, green jobs are important if we think about the climate challenges that the world faces, but in a country like Indonesia, where basic labour rights are not yet secured, they may not be the first priority for a union. In the worst case scenario, the implications are much more serious. And in Indonesia and elsewhere, we can see examples of unions that have been flooded with overseas money and not really asked for much accountability. And this has a couple of important impacts. One is, and I think this is most important, it means that those unions don't have to really engage with their own members. In theory, unions are accountable through democratic processes to their membership. In many parts of the world, of course, this isn't the case, but that's the theory. The problem is when you get a lot of money from overseas, there's not much impetus to collect those dues. And as a result, you often take more notice of what your donors want than what your members actually want. So that's the first one. The second one is the impact on the internal operations of unions. Often in these cases, if there's a lot of overseas money, they're very top-heavy and there are a lot of people in that top layer who may speak good English, who may be good at reporting in ways that are acceptable to international organisations, who may be quite sincere labour activists but are often quite out of touch with the membership. So you can see how these two different aspects of this problem come together to really undermine the long-term sustainability of unions. So it's changing the structure of unions nationally,
0: and it's also changing the relationship that unions have with their members. How has this shaped the national union landscape in terms of unionism and what workers think of a union?
2: I think in Indonesia, overall, the impact has been positive. If you look at Indonesia compared to other countries in Southeast Asia, there is no doubt the labour movement is more dynamic. And the change over the 20 years from the fall of Suharto was quite remarkable, Terry Caraway and I have done some work on this, um, a book we published with Cambridge called Labour and Politics in Indonesia, which really traces the way that the labour movement, which is small and quite weak in many ways, has really punched above its weight, both in policy issues, but also in relation to wages and working conditions.
0: That's a really good segue because I actually wanted to ask you about the book. I've read it and it's a terrific read. And one of the things that struck me about it was this unusual path that Indonesian trade unions have taken in their engagement with politics and political parties. And it's very different, as you say, from other countries in the region. So what have Indonesian trade unions done that's different from the general pattern of state labour relations that we see throughout the rest of the region?
2: Well, let's take a step back even further and think about the standard models of unionism in, say, Western Europe or America. We often assume that large numbers of members account to a high level of power, and we call this associational power. But what's interesting about the union models that are in the West Especially in America, they're very focused on the workplace and unions power in the workplace. So you imagine a union with a shop steward, an organiser who's based in the factory, who gets everyone excited about being a member of the union, and then they negotiate directly with their employer for better conditions. In Western Europe, it's very different. And in many places, particularly in, say, Scandinavia or Germany, It's a model where negotiation with the state is actually more important, really, than what you do in the workplace. So by being embedded in that national system, unions have what we call structural power, which allows them to achieve improvements without actually trying to organise. So how does the situation in Indonesia differ
0: from these traditional structures of unionism that we see in North America and in Europe?
2: It's very different. As I said before, unions are weak in the workplace. so They don't have the level of associational power based in the workplace that you find in the US. Equally, because the government, even though it's more open to unions now than it used to be, is still quite hostile, they're not embedded at the national level in the way that, say, they are in Western Europe. So this was a conundrum that we started to reflect on when we were doing the study. And what became obvious is that unions used a different repertoire of action they combined street protest which was a long standing feature of labor movements in the country even under the Suharto period with taking advantage of new political opportunities so when indonesia democratized it also decentralized and with decentralization came new opportunities at the local level And this was great for unions because unions had been very top-heavy, very focused on Jakarta. And suddenly there were these opportunities to have direct relationships with local district heads, with local parliamentarians and so on.
0: And what was it about this shift in decentralisation and the shift in or the redistribution of power from the central region to the provinces that prompted unions to have new power and to think differently about how they could engage politically?
2: Well, actually, it started with the politicians. Because in the new order, unions had been told and believed that they should be by foreign of the workers and only engage in the economic sphere. Politics was something that was very foreign to them. But what we see is parties saw the potential of union leaders at the local level as vote bringers. They thought they could control their membership's vote and therefore represented a voting bloc that an aspiring politician could access. And how did unions respond to this approach by politicians? Well, it was interesting because, as I said before, on one hand, they were quite firmly convinced that they should only be economic organisations. But on the other hand, it really opened their eyes to their political potential. So under the new order, workers and other ordinary people, or often said to be little people in Indonesia, were not meant to think about politics. They were meant to busy themselves with development and get involved in what's called a Pesta democracy, a democratic party every five years around the elections. And when the parties started to approach union leaders, they suddenly realised that they had a place in politics, that they had a voice, they had a voice that they could use. One of my favourite occasions where this emerged in an interview was with a guy who worked in KFC in Surabaya. So he served on the counter. He was not the manager. He was the guy on the counter, but he was a labour organizer, and he was a charismatic guy, and he had done well in the union, and. They had approached him, a major political party had approached him to run for them. And the look on his face, the pride, the wonder that he felt at being suddenly recognised as a citizen with a political voice and not just someone who should be focusing on development was amazing.
0: So there was an assumption that trade union leaders had a very large voting bloc behind them because of their membership. How did this play out in practice? Did it lead to a large number of trade union officials being elected as
2: politicians? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? When we vote, we don't just vote as workers, we vote as men or women, we vote as people of a particular ethnic background, we vote as a person of a particular religious background. And the unionists, like the parties, underestimated these other vectors of identity. They really thought that if they had a strong following in the factory, that would translate to the political arena. So results were quite disappointing. In several elections, people really overestimated how many votes they would get. But what's interesting for me and her study I did with Terry was not so much those outcomes but the process of learning that company accompanied with them. So if you look at the elections in 2009, 2014, 2019, you see an increasingly sophisticated political strategy from some unions that really is worthy of comment regardless of how many people actually got into parliament. So which, which of the unions
0: were more sophisticated?
2: Well, there's a clear leader in this, right, and that's the Metalworkers' Union that I mentioned before. It's part of a confederation that was basically set up with support from the international community and includes most of the trade unions that have an affiliation to the international unions, the GUFs. Initially, like other unions, they were very suspicious of politics, but through their conversations with their international interlocutors, but also from local NGOs, with local NGOs, they decided that if people were going to exploit union power for politics, they may as well have a say. So you really see this from 2009, but what's interesting in 2009 is it's actually some of the regions that act without central authority to engage with politics, and it's only in 2014 that they really take up this political agenda at the central level.
0: One of the things that really struck me in the book is some of the wins that unions had around minimum wages, and wages of course are of extreme interest to unions and workers. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, the wage story is quite remarkable. In some years, in 2012, 13, 14, there were increases in some places of over 50%. Now, you can imagine if your boss suddenly had to give you a 50% wage increase, it can have quite a big effect and a negative effect on business. But for workers, it was a fantastic win. And the mechanism that was used to achieve these comes back to this political story that I was telling you about before. So what happened was with decentralisation, new local wage councils were introduced. And those local wage councils were tasked, among other things, with setting a minimum wage for the region. And unions really managed to leverage these councils in a very interesting way. Obviously, the government was represented on the councils, as were the employers. So really, the government was in the prime position to make decisions. So the real political story was about who got the government on site. And normally, of course, as we know across the region, government tends to favour the employers. But in this case, because those officials wanted votes, they had quite a record of promising and delivering on really big wage increases for workers.
0: So one of the things that I'm really interested in, as you know, is union density and union member ties. And I'm I'm interested in how these shifts over a number of years has impacted the perception of unions within Indonesia, and even the number of people who are willing to become members or stay members.
2: Well, in that period where wages were rising really quickly, of course, that had a great effect in terms of membership density. Many people who had not previously been union members became members, and those who were nominally members became more engaged. But Obviously, for the government and for business, rises in minimum wages of those sorts of levels weren't very sustainable, and the government cracked down on them in 2015 by bringing in a formula by which wages had to be determined, and in doing so, taking the political question out of the local wage council. So with this, unions' ability to deliver benefits to their members, who care about many things but mostly about wages, suddenly decreased. And this has been a real challenge for unions. How do they maintain that momentum, especially at the local level, without that wage mechanism?
0: And so where do trade unions in Indonesia stand now in 2020?
2: They're still stronger than we might have expected after 2015. I was quite worried in 2015 that the wage changes or changes in the wage setting mechanism would really destroy unions. But they've been quite resilient. I think the experiences of that period, particularly between 2009 and 2014, gave them an insight into what sort of role they could have. And although that's been quite challenging in the face of government resistance, but also a lot of union busting at the factory level, I'm not sure they could ever go back to what they were before.
0: Well, thanks, Michelle. I think the Indonesian case really gives us a lot to think about in terms of trade union and state labour relations throughout not only the region, but globally. Thanks for your time, Michelle.
2: Thanks very much.
1: You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SIAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.